0: Hey ready? welcome back to another episode of the HealthTech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. Now this week we are talking about data because we have a very special guest with us. He's been on my other podcast, the HealthTech podcast. encourage you to all go back and listen to that one to hear more about Philip and his background and everything he's doing about FitFile. But welcome Philip from FitFile. How are you doing, Philip? Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and the company that you run and why you're qualified to talk about three data stories today, or four, if we have time. It's wonderful to be
1: back, James. Uh, Much enjoyed the last time uh, and great to be here with you as well. Um, Thank you so much for the invite. I am Philip Russmeyer. I'm the founder and CEO of FitFile, which is a UK headquartered data access and unification platform. So our approach is all about uh, delivering the safest possible, uh, the most complete and the most scalable uh, record level data access, uh, which we can do in identifiable or pseudonymized or even uh, anonymized at source form. So uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to talk today, James, <laughs> but I certainly have opinions as, as those who know me will, will attest to. Uh, and I think it's just super exciting times, right? For, for data and healthcare, yep. we've had a, a flurry of news, um, you know, let alone maybe some of the stories we're going to talk about today, you know, in the last week or so, we've had the uh, output of the O'Shaughnessy review into clinical research. We've had news of the um, now kicked off Sudlow review, which I think is fantastic because Cathy is amazing. And I think it's going to be very helpful to um, support some of the other data access and sharing initiatives underway. You know, we've seen, for instance, also in the last week, uh, the CAG approval coming through for, for Manchester's SDE. So that's going to be very interesting to watch. It's just crazy. I mean, there's mm. a there's so much happening. And so, yeah, qualified, probably not interested and uh, dangerously underinformed yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> the perfect combination to give opinions on a podcast. Uh, a highly unregulated <laughs> space where we can say whatever we like. Excellent. So on that note, um, myself and Hugh and yourself we're going to talk about a few data stories uh, so let's get into it. Cool, our first story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, well, this is this is a heck of a story, isn't it? Uh, this came out on Bank Holiday Monday, I believe, uh, because Jess and I were in the car coming back from uh, somewhere that we'd been on on the Bank Holiday, like a really nice walk with the dog in the middle of Surrey. And we, I think, Jess looked at her phone in the uh, in the passenger seat of the car and was like, "Oh God, like what has happened here?" Um, and there's me panicking that the, uh, that SOMEX have gone up in flames. It turned out that there was a huge NHS data breach, or indeed a, a report that had, or an investigation that had uh, culminated in the release of all of this information that multiple data breaches had occurred. So NHS trusts were essentially sharing patient details with Facebook without consent. Uh, the Observer Investigation Uncovered. So, Philip, this must have uh, been of great interest to yourself um, as someone that is very much in this space, as you said. So what are your thoughts and feelings around this?
1: Well, lots of feelings because I think uh, this story is a prime example of why everyone touching sensitive and special category patient data needs to apply the highest standards of privacy preservation. And I mm. think there needs to be that sensitivity and those processes and technologies that actually ensure that. Uh, I, I have no problem with social media. You know, I think it's about sixty percent or so of the world's population, mm. uh, which is what more than four billion people who who use social media, and and, and who are we to argue with that, right? Um, and and there can also be interesting insights generated uh, out of that social media usage. For instance, one of the companies that that I've had involvement with in the past, you guys may know, um, looks at the comments on the quality and outcomes of treatments and healthcare facilities by, uh, by by patients, right, um, and individuals on on platforms like Facebook. And this is a company called Pep Health. Now, Pep uses automated, anonymized machine learning um, to collate actionable insights to improve patient experiences coming out of voluntary comments made by individuals on on those social media platforms, right? But that, for example, together with consented data being explicitly shared by by people, um, again, can be very helpful, but is completely different to what's unfortunately appeared to have happened with Metapixel. Uh, and, And I think... You know, this story for for, for you and and, and those who've read it, I think, quoted Professor David Leslie of the Alan Turing Institute, who I think is absolutely right in saying that citizens' reasonable expectation should be that their NHS website activity would not be shared with third party commercial entities in identifiable form. I I think there can be no, you know, whoever may not have quite organized this correctly and for whatever reasons. to me, at least, that's a bright line, you know. If mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm looking, and I think the examples are really interesting, right? If I if I'm a patient looking at the patient handbook of HIV medication, for example, I would not, I believe, reasonably expect that the name of the drug, the NHS trust, my IP address, which can identify if not me, then certainly my household, right, and details of my Facebook user ID all being at least theoretically available to Facebook. I mean, that 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 is not something that I think if I haven't been warned, I should at all expect to be the case.
0: Yeah, I just want to give a bit of context here for everybody listening of what's actually happened. So if you haven't seen this, and if you're in healthcare, my goodness, please have a look at this, especially if you are any, uh, in any organisation that might be falling foul of this. But the Observer did this investigation, and what, what they uncovered was a, co- well, they, they describe it as a covert tracking tool in the websites of 20 NHS trusts, has for years been collecting browsing information and sharing it with Facebook in this massive breach of privacy. So it's this metapixel, which records data, and very granular data, which is the pages you have viewed, the buttons you have clicked, the keywords you have searched, it matches that to your IP, which is an identifier linked to you as an individual or your household. And actually then can link that with your Facebook account. And so when it comes to this sort of anonymization of this, it's practically zero here, because this can be reverse engineered to see exactly who you are, and exactly what you've been doing. Now, I guess my question for you, Philip, here is, is this naive? Is this ignorant? Is this malicious? Is this something that people would likely to have known and just cast a blind eye to Like, or t- turned a blind eye to. You, like, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand. Like, how how does this end up happening? Because for NHS trusts to have websites that use these meta pixels, I believe that to be an active process to have set that up. Now, is it the people that those trusts have employed to set those websites up that do that by default, or? Like, where, where's the liability here? And, and I mean, I can go into some of, the, some of the, 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 the actual problems that this has caused later on, and it's harrowing. And actually, just to put this into context, I might as well just say this now. Like, for example, the observer revealed in one case, and this shows you, all you guys listening, like what this actually means. So Buckinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust shared when a user viewed a patient handbook for HIV medication, the name of the drug and the NHS Trust were sent to the company along with the user's IP address and details of their Facebook user ID. And that is one of many, and I mean many, that they name in this article. But that just shows you the scale of the issue here when it comes to privacy and lack thereof. So, Philip, what, what do you think about the liability here? And, and, and how has this happened?
1: From the article. Right, and and we've we've talked to one or two people who are reasonably close to this as right. well in the last few days, because some of the entities named uh, uh, may may be in uh, in some sort of um, dialogue, if if not uh, uh, already active partnership with Fitfile, and so um, it does sound to us at least like there were genuine reasons. For tracking, for instance, the effectiveness of NHS recruitment or mm. charity campaigns, right? Where, as happens, of course, with many websites, most I would argue, you know, these these tracking mechanisms, cookies, and so forth, do exist. Now, personally, as an aside, I always reject all non-essential cookies because I think, um, you know, I don't need targeted advertising and the like. But it's typically par for the course. And again, it can be valuable, right? If you are an NHS entity and you're trying to understand where you need to deploy your scarce resources, what works and what doesn't, Mm. I can understand that there may be instances where you'd like to be able to track this. So I wouldn't say necessarily it is all naive, but I think it does take me to highlighting that What is always important is that you have enough of a balance of not just ability and understanding, but also time and resources. If, for instance, you are an NHS trust interfacing with entities like Meta, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are these technologies which can be useful, but, you know, we've seen this with NHS organizations. There is very little spare capacity, right, because there are always lots of lots of draws on people's attention and I think when entering into these kind of arrangements a lot of work does have to be done to understand the full extent and to also make sure that the partners that are engaged with um you know can show very readily what they do and don't do so facebook said well look we've got filters we don't accept sensitive health data and so forth but i think that particular article stops short of a full and final confirmation from facebook that no absolutely they have not used or at least viewed any of this data Mm -hmm. i don't think that's in that article Mm -hmm. right to your point about how willingly does this get entered my understanding is that uh, metapixel for example can be activated through in-app browsers. right. So if you are using an in-app browser to access a website, it may be possible to inject JavaScript code that can then subsequently track activity without consent from individuals or even the websites. So I don't know the details in this particular case uh, enough to opine on whether or not that happened. But that is a general risk that I think, you know, everybody, even we as individual citizens should be aware of, Mm -hmm. that if you use, for example, on your mobile device an in-app browser, it is absolutely the case that additional JavaScript code can be injected without anybody being able to control that from the outside, and that then would track your activity and in turn, of course, offer, for instance, targeted advertising based on your browsing.
0: And I will say as well, like in in the article, it does say that over that weekend, 17 of the 20 that were using Metapixel confirmed that they pulled it from their tracking, uh, from the tracking tool from their websites, eight issued apologies and multiple said, just as you've just actually identified, Philip, that they'd originally installed them to monitor recruitment or charity campaigns and weren't aware of the extent to which that data was being shared, which... Is now being investigated. Now, Hugh, you have just this morning taken a very unwilling Somex team through a cybersecurity audit. Um,
2: what, are your, <laughs> what are your, what are your thoughts on this? So, I think, Philip, what you were just saying about uh, the lack of capacity in the NHS and some of the difficulties um, getting. some some of the understanding around this. And I think for me, this is a digital skills issue and um, a potentially illegal one, but obviously, you know, not enough information to comment in this article. At some point, as we say, and as the article says, this information was captured before users consented to cookie's Data. Now, along with the side point that I totally agree with Philip, if you can reject cookies from websites, do reject anything but essential because you have no idea what's following you around the internet. It's absolutely absurd. But somewhere this system has been set up where this, you know, standard information governance protocols have not been followed, whether that's advice received has been poor, whether there's been difficulties understanding the advice that has received whether there's been a problem with you know misunderstanding but somewhere there's been a breakdown in that information governance protocol where someone has received the incorrect advice and I think it's quite interesting you know given that at some point these NHS trusts will have chosen to install this tracking whether that's a decision by an individual within the trust or a decision by a contractor building these websites to support or, you know, Facebook didn't say, install this pixel. It's interesting that it was allowed to happen somewhere. And my guess is nowhere on any of the data governance um, information provided did users were users told, we're sending, you know, we are sending information to Meta. We are sending information to a big tech giant. We are sending information to someone that, you know, potential health information out. Yeah, that transparency definitely wasn't there. So I think there needs to be a bit more there. And then the question is, sort of where did the data governance protocols fail? Like, who is the DPO? Whose liability is it? Whose responsibility is it? We can't come up with that from uh, from this article or from any of the information that's been provided so far, and we shouldn't try to answer that. But it is interesting that at least one of the trusts has said that they are considering pursuing legal action against Meta in this case, which uh, is not in this article, but if you Google it outside of this, there is at least one considering what legal action could be possible in this case. And I'm just not sure whether Meta is the right target for that or whether that's an effective use. But I think all this is telling us is no matter whether you're an NHS trust or you're contracting with the NHS trust, be incredibly clear on your data governance and information governance protocols, have someone who understands it, make sure that the link between your data protection team and your technical team is strong and that they are overseeing and approving use of technology like this. Um, You know, if you are installing something from Meta as part of your recruitment campaigns, make sure that someone's looking at that and saying, what does this tool actually do? What instances are there that could cause a breach like this? And if it's something that's worth the risk, be transparent on that risk. If it's not, don't use it. It's a bit Basic, where putting it, but I think that you know this is the real question, and just making sure that those skills are there within the trusts, within the contractors, that you've got the trust in house, or that your contractor is you know um, skilled enough to know what they're using as well. So I think that's that's what this says for me.
1: I, I agree. I agree with that, Hugh. I, I don't see. I, I can't imagine there was maliciousness on the part of anybody in the exactly. NHS. Um, and also, it doesn't sound like there's been any benefit that that's come back mm-hmm. to any of the NHS organizations from this. So it feels like maybe it is, as we said earlier, a bit of an oversight uh, issue. And I think, you know, what I'm, I guess, worried about with news stories like this is that this may have backlash consequences that would be against the interests of patients. And what I mean by that is, I think, you know, if this then results in people clamping down and saying, well, this means we better not share any data or make our data accessible to anybody outside our own organization, lest this sort of thing occurs, would be the wrong reaction. I think the better reaction is much more in line with what you're saying, Hugh, which is, how can we use this, um, unfortunately as a well overdue reminder but one of one of many reminders that we get to do this properly but also smartly right so as you say Hugh i think it does it does point me certainly to saying right okay so what are the ig processes also who are the specialist experts that we're drawing on how do we go deep enough but not too deep to stop something happening in terms of vetting who we work with such that we satisfy some core objectives like staying in control of data release on individuals at all times, right? I think you have to have these NH organizations as data controllers being absolutely explicitly aware. And as you said, transparently communicating for sure, but also internally, completely in control of what data flows where. If any data is used beyond its original purpose, and you know, this is one of my hobby horses, so I will say it, it should be anonymized as early as possible. And it should not be moved unless there is a critical reason to do so and in this case there is movement of data which i find um you know really unhelpful because this has happened as you guys were saying at scale for 20 organizations for a number of years so i i think you know this would have been a large enough amount of data that ideally as the article also says an organization like like meta should you know or could maybe do even more to just stop that from happening in the first place.
0: You mentioned a really important word there, Philip, which is patience. And actually that's what we should be focused on here, that yes, there has been something that has happened, which is not very good for those patients that have been affected by this but to throw the baby out with the bathwater at this stage would be a further mistake on top of mistakes that have happened the question should be what do we learn from this to make everything better for patient care now you'll know philip because we discussed it on our last uh, podcast that we did together but one thing that i am so fascinated by at the moment is how do we fix infrastructure deeply to allow for better adoption of technology to ultimately improve patient care at scale? Now, one thing that you mentioned to you there was that right at the start of what you said is that I think this is a digital skills issue. Now, I think you're right because one thing that I am am sort of gleaning from all this, using my own experience as well, is that There was clearly a lack of knowledge here around the power of browsing the internet and this thing called a pixel, and even just perhaps some assumptions that putting a website up in cyberspace, it is then there to be looked at by people and that that is one way. There might be that assumption amongst many people in that team and to your point, Hugh, you know, one person, one contractor, one one person that's not connected that just jumps through a few of those hurdles, slightly shortcutty and in, does the pixel thing, blah, 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 and misses out that step of the governance. And all of a sudden, that whole team is now culpable for this massive thing that's happened. And had people have been aware of the power of a pixel and what a, and what, what a pixel is and the power of what it means to accept cookies and even when i just said that about using my own experience what you two have just said there about the power of just accept all on cookies that's that's an education to me genuinely like i even i'm not aware really of like what the power of that is and you both saying quite vehemently reject all but the necessary makes me just immediately think, oh God, like what is following me now around on the internet and actually where is my, you know, it's like, I I don't know. And and that's the problem. I don't know. Back to your point, a digital skills issue. I don't know. And actually perhaps a solution here, if we're going to think long-term about deeply solving this problem, because you're right, Philip, this has happened at scale. This has happened by multiple people making the same mistake. And if that is the case, then it is not the fault of, A couple of individuals that are acting maliciously clearly it's a deeper information governance and process issue that perhaps the answer is broad large-scale education here to remove that fear around the power of certain things and just to remove the fact that we that they and we don't know about these things and actually to educate people on why we would do certain things for cyber security which Hugh you did genuinely very well this morning for us and our team about the why which is incredibly important and we feel more educated now we feel that we're going to change our practice now and actually you know we we won't be installing random pixels for no reason so I don't, it just—it feels to me like this is a this needs now a level of understanding. It does not need finger pointing and blame. Perhaps this actually need, or if it does, that's in a minority of cases. I I would hypothesise. I think now this needs to be looked at. Of like, okay, there's a real education issue about digital skills and digital literacy when it comes to cybersecurity. And those all might be incredibly boring words to many, many, many people listening to this podcast and and operating in healthcare, but let's explore the why. And let's explore the why by saying that an HIV patient accessed the website in good faith and is now completely identifiable, which whether you're a clinician, whether you're uh, any healthcare professional, or indeed anyone working in the NHS or any healthcare organization, you can appreciate how terrible that is. And especially if you're a patient.
2: I'm going to jump in quickly just there as well and say that these lessons can be learned. And if we can, and I think it is an urgent thing to start us learning. Uh, I, I realized just a few minutes before we started this podcast that this story sounded really familiar. And that's because in June 2022, and I'm going to read this straight up. A report by the markup found that the Metapixel was being used on the websites of hundreds of hospitals across the United States. Mm -hmm. The report found that the code was collecting patient data, including their names, medical conditions and appointment dates. It's less than a year since they found out this was happening in hundreds of U.S. hospitals. And there was definitely an opportunity to learn that if we'd had system level learning um, from you know looking at elsewhere yeah you know, if we'd had that system-wide approach to this we could have seen that happen god there's a lesson we can learn i think
1: you you're you're right that it um you know it's the skills it's the awareness but it's also trying to make sure that this gets handled better in a scalable way uh because i think having interfaced with DPOs, having dealt with data sharing agreements, with data protection impact, you know, kind of assessments, I, I think there is a lot of goodwill effort on the part of the NHS to get this right. Um, but there's also a lot of duplication of effort. And again, the fact that there are 20 separate organizations who did this, you know, it, it, it we do need to, uh, we do need to try and uh, be as coordinated as possible about this. And it's one of the reasons why I think one of the other news stories this week around the... The, the uh, renewal of the HSN remit, or what they're now going to call the HINs, I really find very, very positive because this, you know, th- this should not, again, it shouldn't stop data being made accessible for the right reasons in the right way. It shouldn't stop innovative approaches to do that really well. But as you guys are, are prescribing, it does need to be done in a responsible and an aware way uh, without uh, introducing, on the other hand, yet another round of cumbersome obligations uh and 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 taking it too far
0: as philip just mentioned uh next story we're going to talk about today is that the nhs and government are backing ahsn's to continue to lead innovation under a new name so, the government and NHS England have today confirmed their intention to relicense England's 15 academic health science networks under the revised badge of Health Innovation Networks to reflect their key role in supporting development and spread of innovation across health services. Um, so, Philip, tell me why this is interesting.
1: The label Health Innovation Network, first of all, I think is arguably closer to what we've seen in practice. The AHSNs that we've interfaced with, like other organizations of their kinds, have a very delicate role to play because they don't necessarily, historically at least, have had very extensive Executive powers, but they have sought to bring in innovation, uh, uh, you know, effect change, improve outcomes in the way that that article highlights. And I think they're very important, therefore, in a kind of matrix of having, you know, the organizations closer to the ground, maybe the kind of more central organizations and sort of sitting as part of the glue, I would argue, in between all of those. Um, And so we have seen in practice, uh, for instance, uh, through working up projects with Health Innovation Manchester, uh, which by the way, as an AHSN arguably led the way with that new name convention, whilst AHSN was still being used elsewhere, um, that they can play a really powerful role in, uh, in, in, in bringing in new ways of working and, uh, and maybe relieving some of the front-end resourcing that would otherwise be required, whilst also trying to push out innovation within and across regions. Right. So I, I, I am personally very supportive of the continuation of these entities.
0: Nice. I used to work at, uh, the health innovation network. So, um, I know that's what the, the new name for us is, but the South London AHSN was actually called the HIN, the health innovation network. So adding another level of, uh, confusion and complexity here. Uh, but I used to, I used to work there. Um, and I was there when, uh, I was at the digitalhealth.london accelerator, which was um, basically run out of that office. So not working necessarily for or with the AHSN, but actually the accelerator was based in there. And so I have a soft spot for AHSNs and I know that they have their critics. And for those people that don't, I guess, understand what they do, AHSNs are 15 centers around uh, the country that are there Uh, to link within their geography innovators the nhs and i believe academia and the whole point is that they exist as a sort of front door particularly to innovators that are looking to um, get more market access to the nhs or indeed research to help them prove what their innovation can do um, they also have membership so that they they have nhs organizations as sort of members of that AHSN, and as part of that they get access to uh, the information that they have on all those local innovators and things like that and they can facilitate in- introductions and that kind of thing and so goodness knows i've seen projects work i've seen projects not work but that's part of innovation as well and actually as i say I, I know they have their critics and i think when you're an organization that's set up to help as many as possible i think you there's going to be quite a lot of haystack to get through before that needle of yes it was an exactly what this person in our membership needed it was the perfect innovation and it was the you know perfect thing that we could do and of course there'll be um lots of different things that that don't work along the way but as i say having worked at one i know that much like any other nhs organization that might face criticism it's made up of people and it's made up of people trying to do good work and it's made up of people trying to do a good job and actually to criticize an organization i always find interesting because what is it that you're criticizing are you criticizing the logo the badge the building And ultimately you're, you're or, or the leadership maybe or the what they're trying to do like it's, it's interesting like when you criticize an organization like trying to identify what it actually is you're criticizing and i, I find that of 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 AHSNs, you know like what what is it that people are criticizing is it that they had a bad experience going through that they didn't get what they wanted and ultimately their innovation didn't work or is it that they're not getting what they think it should and and by the way like you know fair, fair enough like some criticism is is may well be fair but like as I say, I, I do have a soft spot having worked there that there are good people trying to do very good things. And actually some of those good things, as you just experienced, Philip, like can can certainly work. And so with this new funding and backing for those AHSNs with essentially a new rebrand, I think to go down the route that you just said there, Philip, about like it, it more accurately describes A, the work they do or B what the sector needs, then you know, perhaps along with this now comes a slightly different mandate of what they want to and should do and I think with most things as well like assessment drives learning as I learned when I did my education degree and actually the metrics that you set on organizations like this will very much depend uh, the activity that they do will very much depend um, on those metrics and so it's important that those people that are giving that funding to those organizations it's worth looking at what the conditions are of that what are the metrics now set by the department of health and social care that have given this funding or NHS england or how you know however that structure is is organized you know what metrics are they set because you know i've seen examples of metrics set uh, not necessarily hsn's now but like you, you know even when we're running the accelerator you know hours of support given to startups is a metric well you can imagine look, like if, if you give 100 accelerators that metric and say hey you're going to raise a load of money if you can give 150 hours of support to startups. Well, you know, you can count that in many different ways. You can do certain things and blah, blah, blah. Like, is that going to drive actually like genuine value to the ecosystem? And so I think it's important that um what we set for AHSNs or what the government is setting for AHSNs and that those metrics are actually tied to what is going to be valued by the space. And actually, I think it's important for people to not necessarily judge AHSNs on the volume of what is not done, but perhaps to look at the top of that peak as to what was done. I agree with with pretty much
1: everything you've said, because, you know, some of the benefits that are quoted in that article around having delivered 11 national adoption and spread programs supporting the rapid uptake of 28 NICE approved products you know benefiting more than 2.3 million patients right there you have some interesting metrics right in mm-hmm. terms of the number of beneficiaries the number of programs you know where where and how does it impact products and i and i think one of the really exciting dimensions to the evolving role of what we will now call the health innovation networks is the uh, secure data environment program. Because uh, as far as we can tell, quite a few of the people that have been, uh, you know, part of the HSN networks have um, been facilitating very interesting uh, opportunities to potentially bring together and this may touch on the federated data platform as well, right because and, and I think we have to see how this all will will pan out, but the people within the health innovation networks have been fostering a usefully integrated approach to the smarter use of data. Uh, and what I mean by that is that we have been involved with with quite a few forward thinkers I would argue, who are saying, well look, we are we are supposed to help with the spinning up." of the secure data environments. But we know also from all the work that we've been doing that when it comes to health planning and linking the data used for health planning with better care, for example, case finding, right? Or or understanding better who's in and who's out of which catchment areas. There's a whole plethora of use cases that we know ICSs and so forth are struggling with, right? That actually I'm very hopeful that uh, this kind of you know renewal of the license is going to allow them to help bring together genuinely right um, the the best possible approaches to to making that that data usage safe and scalable, but also actually addressing each of those use cases across not just what they are supposed to help with on the SDE front, mm-hmm. but for health planning and care. And in that way, I think in conjunction with those other programs, again, uh, ever the optimist, I know. But I I feel like you know that could be really exciting.
0: Mm. It it does show as well that like not all the work that organisations like this do is completely visible either to everybody that fancies having a pop. And and so actually one question I had for you, Philip. There you mentioned two two things. You mentioned the secure secure data platform. I think you said, and then the federated data platform. Can you explain what those two things are? Yeah, of course. So the secure.
1: Uh, data exchanges is the uh, is the evolution of the so-called trusted research environments. So this is the initiative which is taking place both at the national level and then at the sub-national level, led by Claire Bloomfield and her team. Uh, and so across the country, um, the secure data environments at the sub-national level are expected to have, I believe, something like two to five million patients each. Uh, and they are at various stages of funding and, I would say, by their own admission as well, um, progress in terms of how close they are to being able to to support that program. But uh, very excitingly, I think that is supposed to help with a number of research-oriented use cases around uh, supporting smarter clinical trials, around kind of algorithm development, around, again, then straying a little bit into the population health management it's a very large program, which is in the in the process of being kicked off. So I mentioned earlier, Manchester, for example, are are in the vanguard here, as uh, I would argue the the London consortium around this is. But there are other there are other areas. So so for example, uh, in the eastern AHSN, as was uh, there are forward thinkers like Mark Avery and and Kieran Rain, who are, who are all over this. Um, Kent Surrey Sussex, for example, you've got. Has Holden, the CEO, you've got Mark Watson, the digital program director, and John Elsom, for example, who are really pushing here to try and help make sure the STE program gets off the ground. And as I said earlier, the planning and care side can also be taken uh, into account uh, in a really streamlined way. And that then links back to what you were asking about in terms of the federated data platform, which is... Of course, uh, been a news item uh, with regard to who might be providing that. Uh, we all know that uh, that there is a number of of consortia in the running, so that is a live procurement process with multiple components, multiple lots, and again, the exact scope of that, I believe, is is going to need to be uh, need to be really defined. Almost, almost. Um, through the unfolding of the FDP and the SDE, because the FDP, uh, which is supposed to operate at the kind of local, regional, as well as national levels, may well be an interesting source of data for the SDEs for research use cases. But oh, the exact see. delineation okay. between all of those depends who you talk to. We have our view as FedFile, uh, and I have my personal views. Um, but everybody, of course, will be entitled to and will have their own view on on where on where and how those pieces could fit together. They are not inextricably linked for sure. Um, but again, you know, with the with the with the HINs kind of in the middle, that can hopefully be useful to to help work that out because it's it's not supposed to be one size fits all. And I think managing that tension, right, between continually championing innovation locally or regionally whilst sharing best practice and coordinating nationally is a really delicate one. Because in The Limit, you know, a lot of evils could be sorted if you just say, right, here's a decision, and that's what we're going to do across the country, full stop. But that may absolutely be unwelcome when it comes to actually embracing Again, particularly with technology, right? We all know things move forward all the time. There are better ways of doing things, so you need to stay open enough to that as well. Uh, and and again, that's why I think um, you know the HIN structure could mm. can really, if 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 managed properly, help with that.
0: Hugh, your thoughts on HSNs and federated data?
2: Uh, I think they've been covered really. I mean, I've only encountered them a few times, but each time the experience has been positive. And I think if you're talking about the problems that. They're trying to solve publicly, you know, publicly, and the, the the particularly from the the innovators who come into contact with them um, on a regular basis. What are the challenges that you know people always talk about when um, trying to you know market their market innovative solutions to the NHS? It's challenges creating an evidence base from which to scale, and challenges finding clinical champions who will actually get behind them when it comes to procurement. And I think AHSNs. I mean there will obviously be people who say that you know they won't they won't have done that, but that's the job that they're openly doing and from all from my experiences individually um they seem to be quite good at it so All
0: right, a final story that we're going to chat about this week is um. Uh, follow on from these other two stories, really. That so, Rachel Sylvester at The Times has penned a piece titled "The AI Revolution Can Put Patients at the Centre of the NHS." So, self triage, augmented reality surgery, and robot helpers are just some of the Israeli innovations that we would do well to replicate," says Rachel philip what do you think
1: i really like this article because it shows the art of the possible right they 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 talk about an israeli hospital where you know people register digitally they self-triage in booths based on data collection on vital signs people get given a barcode again a different form of data right and then Mm -hmm. real-time bed capacity and operating theater slots are measured with data, and then it helps uh, with precision medicine because everybody's got a genetic code, um, you know, on the system. And then because all the resources are better utilized, you reduce burnout. I mean, it's it's Nirvana, right? Mm. Sitting in the UK, you know, with all the challenges that the system is bringing with it, you know, it, it's kind of the the answer to everything. And and I do think as an aspiration for us, and as a reminder of the power of, of, of data underpinning almost all of this, right, it's really, really helpful. I actually, I don't really agree with with Rachel when she says that using data more, operating in this way would turn the relationship between doctor and patient on its head. I, I don't think we need that. I also don't think people have ceded control over their own health, like, like she's suggesting. I think it's different. I think it's about doctors having the right data to better and more quickly treat people which in turn frees up resources, which in turn leads to better health outcomes, which in turn leads to people that feel better, and more empowered, etc. And then you have a virtuous data-driven circle of continuous improvement, where it's not about the patient being in charge, but where the healthcare professional can be a trusted support to patients who, like other stakeholders, can see the data that they should see to make the best possible decisions.
0: Mm. That's what I think this shows. Yes, absolutely, and I love this optimism. I love that this is so visual. This article for those that want to read it, we'll definitely link it in the description. Um, it, it it talks in lovely detail about this hospital, and you kind of wonder with. You know the Cleveland Clinic being built in London afresh, and a lot going on in the Middle East. Brand new hostels being built, mm. and things like you just wonder like this, this this could be done. And I remember going to the uh, the hospital in Helsinki, the pediatric hospital in Helsinki, and and they had so much of this technology. You know, they had automatic uh, assessments of capacity of rooms based on cameras and all, all these different things that were that were just allowing for this wonderful resource allocation and efficiency of all this stuff but like you philip um the only the only thing that i would i would disagree with is is at the end where she says that that technology is a threat to the medical establishment because it will turn the relationship between doctor and patient on its head i guess our, our perhaps our disagreement there might be around the word establishment and what that actually means because perhaps there are a group of uh Potentially established uh, clinicians, very near the very top, or certainly um, of a certain age that that might be resistant. But my my real feeling is that actually people that are on the ground floor, jobbing clinicians, just don't actually know the art of the possible. And actually, I don't think technology threatens a, a relationship change. I think actually a relationship change if 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 there is one is more of just an iteration anyway of a route that we've gone on a long time now which is that it's not the doctor telling the patient what to do i would argue that we're already there we're not actually at a point where many i think it would be a very minute percentage of doctors are telling patients what to do and expectant of that I, i i do genuinely believe that the decision making between doctor and patient has uh it is now joint decision making that's what i'm trying to say and i think i think technology i don't think technology is a threat to that but i do enjoy the optimism of this article and how it's written
1: i think it's great to see a growing number of innovators inside the nhs pushing to move things forward but i also think there are still lots of examples of the nhs perhaps thinking it has to do too much itself and we do see that, which is a point of core competency, right? Mm-hmm. And drawing on the kind of specialist expertise where required, that should be what everybody does. And I think the future lies in having more coordinated frameworks for engagement, like we've already discussed. And that, by the way, stretches into, for instance, you know, fair value share principles, which, which people like Kelly Lynn are leading, you know, kind of to really make sure that that interface with with the private sector at large, if you like, mm-hmm. is structured in the right way uh, so that there isn't, uh, that there isn't um, kind of potentially uh, taking advantage of um, the stretched resources inside the inside the NHS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do have standardized and high quality vetting of private sector providers. But I think the alternative of, of, of drawing on an already overworked NHS resource base with outdated technology and approaches can't, can't be the answer, right? So it is, it is, It is about who do you engage with smartly, externally, and I think, can we be open enough as well to entrepreneurship? I think the article is really interesting in highlighting, for example, Israeli readiness to embrace expertise from other sectors, Mm -hmm. which, you know, even in their case stretches to defense, but, you know, I've seen that in my career as an investor, you know, the opportunity to cross-fertilize advances from other sectors would be really, really useful if it's embraced a bit more in healthcare, I, I would argue. So so I think that you know stuff does need to happen more in the UK to get to this nirvana but I also think there's cause for optimism because we do have electronic health records okay I think the article says 12% of hospitals are still <laughs> paper based and that's that's just incredible Um, but we have you know for the most part whether that's CERNA or EPIC in the secondary care setting or EMIS, TPP, you know primary care we have these the the basis for tapping into that and some interesting specialist providers as well by the way like Patient Source, who are really 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 strong in structuring data which is useful and we have the NHS app with 32 million users we have examples like Milton Keynes in the article who who are I think driving some better resource planning an enlightened sponsorship of wearables for diabetics, for example. And then we have what we already discussed, the FDP, the SDEs, the HINDS, the ICBs, whatever acronym you want to make <laughs> up. Um, but there's a lot here, right? There's a lot to build on. Um, so I think if we can overcome a couple of those challenges around coordinated innovation uh, and aligning incentives, then it's not impossible mm. to copy this model.
0: I love that um it's a great note to end on and, and thank you philip for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure if anybody listening wants to check out Fitfile and everything they are doing to help solve um many data problems uh in healthcare, then by all means do check them out we'll link that in the description of the episode but for everybody listening i'm going to leave you with this paragraph from uh rachel's article uh, and it's about milton keynes that that Philip just mentioned. And she says this that some trailblazers are pioneering the way to the future. And that this week, Rachel visited Milton Keynes Hospital, which has thrown out all its paper records and converted its old archive into a suite of training rooms. Patients can book appointments and see test results on their phones, and doctors use voice recognition technology to transcribe their notes automatically. And there is a Harry Potter-style Marauder's Map to track staff and equipment moving around the hospital and an AI-enabled operations room that predicts the date of discharge to help free up beds. And this hospital is also planning to give Apple Watches or Fitbits to 2,000 diabetic patients who will receive financial incentives to exercise the program itself will pay for itself if it prevents just one amputation so that just shows you the art of the possible and leaves you all with a bit of optimism that if we can do it in Milton Keynes then why can't we do it everywhere else so thank you everybody for listening it's been an absolute pleasure uh, Philip Hugh thank you for joining me we will catch you all next week